well, if we take this data in, what are we going to do with it? So we talk about what we're going to do with it before we do anything. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 63, and today's guest is Carolyn Anderson. Carolyn has had an amazing career, an MBA from Tuck Business School, time spent in the finance world just like me, and then successful digital marketing roles at L'Oreal and Bliss in the beauty space, And now she's Group VP Digital Marketing and CRM at Spark Group. I've worked with her at Spark during my time at Brooks Brothers and Eddie Bauer, and she's been a great business partner. I know that you'll enjoy the show. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready? Break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Carolyn Anderson. Carolyn is a digital marketing executive with more than 15 years of professional experience in retail marketing and digital. She's currently Group Vice President, Digital Marketing and CRM at Spark Group, where she's leading a transformation and modernization of the digital commerce and marketing capabilities for iconic American brands, including Aeropostale, Nautica, Lucky Brand, Brooks Brothers, Forever 21, Eddie Bauer, and Reebok. Prior to joining Spark, she led Digital at Bliss, a spa skincare brand, and previously served as the head of global digital marketing at NYX Professional Makeup, a division of L'Oreal. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm so excited to be here. The listeners can't see, but... um, Carolyn joined our video here, our Zoom call. She's wearing her Lehigh hat. I'm wearing my Lafayette hat. So let's get started. Uh, the the way I like to start the show, uh, as I'm, I'm sure you've listened to all 62 of the previous shows, uh, Carolyn, is to get a little background, you know, kind of your first story. Uh, I've learned in, in doing all these shows that oftentimes people you know, kind of where they grew up, you know, family life might give some uh, sense of what they're going to do in their career. So tell us about uh, your, your upbringing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So I grew up in Brookfield, Connecticut, which is a small town outside of Danbury. Um, For those familiar, there's either I-95 or 84. I live off, lived off I-84. I'm the middle child of three girls. uh, So I have an older sister and a younger sister. And I have two food scientist parents. I grew up playing a lot of sports. I played soccer very competitively. So that's what I spent most of my time doing. Um, And that's what led me to Lehigh. And growing up in a small town in Connecticut, you know, I definitely had the same friends for all 18 years, which is pretty cool. But I did do a one-year stint in Canada in fifth grade, which was definitely an interesting and challenging experience. You you were nice enough to introduce me to your... uh... Your, I guess your younger sister uh, recently who's in marketing. Uh, so we'll be uh, networking in, I guess, another week or so. So thanks for doing that. And then, you know, the, the one thing, you know, going back just to the Lehigh Lafayette, that game 
is the most often played rivalry in college football. And when I tell that to people, they just don't believe it. You know, they're like, how can it not be Army Navy? Um, but in fact, uh, they played that game multiple times a year very early on. So and and thankfully, uh, Lafayette leads the series 80 to 72 to five. Thanks for that piece of information. <laughs> that was really but helpful. We high did win last year. Yeah. OK. All so, right. you know. <laughs> Good backstory on on you know where you were were brought up. One of the things that was interesting as I was uh, you know researching just your background, we have something in common. We both kind of got our starts in finance. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, I uh, I went to Lehigh, and as I had shared, both my parents are food scientists, so I thought I was going to be a science major. Uh, during my first year of playing D1 soccer and doing a science major, I quickly pivoted to business. Um, and in the business school, I definitely realized that I had a knack for accounting. Um, it's something that came very easily to me, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and that led me to going down that track at Lehigh. I really enjoyed the major. I really enjoyed figuring out you know, how to read a balance sheet and complete the reconciliations um, to the point where I actually pursued an internship with PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I did that in London after my junior year. Definitely the internship taught me pretty quickly that I wanted to pivot. Turns out learning accounting is a little, little bit different than being an auditor. Um, so after that, I ended up pursuing a career in finance uh, with Merrill Lynch when I graduated, um, but really appreciate the background. Um, it's really helped me a lot. I manage P&Ls and manage budgets, um, and it's really helped me uh, accelerate in my career in marketing. Yeah, um, I, I know how I, and people have asked me, you know, throughout my career, geez, you know, how did you make that leap from um, from marketing, uh, from finance and accounting into marketing. And, and to me, it was so, it was kind of a logical, um, especially performance marketing, which, you know, we both do so much of it, so much about the numbers uh, that really uh, kind of made sense to me in, in making that transition. You go through, uh, you know, the, the accounting thing, and then uh, I, I guess you decide that uh, that's not for you, as you're saying. What was next, though? Yeah, so next was um, I ended up pursuing a finance program at Merrill Lynch. Um, but I think what's really interesting about my background is I made a lot of really early decisions. And I definitely went with what I thought was most interesting and used a lot of networking to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, so I actually graduated in 2007 um, and joined Merrill Lynch that year. Um, and I spent about six months there and ended up within my first three months, realizing I also didn't want to do that. And I networked with some fellow graduates from Lehigh. Um, we had quite a few Lehigh graduates that went through the merchandising development program at Bloomingdale's. Um, and I thought, given my interest in math and accounting and running a business and, you know, being a little bit closer to the product that I would enjoy being a merchant. So I decided to pursue that and did their training program. Um, so that had me leaving Merrill Lynch in January of 2008, which is significant. Because had I stayed till June, I probably would have been laid off um, because that's when the financial crisis hit. And my job at Merrill Lynch at the time was working on CLOs or collateralized loan obligations. Um, and that's something that played a big role in the collapse of the economy. Wow, that's interesting. Good timing, I guess. <laughs> um, 
And, you know, I, I think, you know, back to your uh, just looking at your early you know, background, Facebook was very prominent in your early part of your career. And it seems that's kind of where you made that leap into yeah. digital marketing um, very heavily. This was 2010. So when you got to Facebook, kind of set the stage for us, you know, how big were they at the time? This was pre-IPO, I guess. Tell us about that. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Bloomingdale's was a really interesting opportunity where I went through the merchant program and got to the senior assistant buyer level. Uh, Bloomingdale's was very structured in terms of what you would do first, second, third. And I realized after those two years that I, I was much more interested in learning what it would be like to be on um, a major CPG type brand. And on that path, I thought about business school and I thought about, well, what do I need on my resume to get there? And I had a bunch of friends uh, that actually worked at Facebook at the time. So at the time, the Facebook office in New York was an ad sales office. It was less than 50 people. Um, and I took a leap and actually became the office assistant and an executive assistant to somebody who ran the East Coast of sales for Facebook at the time. And it's very different than it is today. I looked up some stats in preparation for this call. Uh, so when I left Facebook in 2012, it was about 3,500 to 5,000 employees. Um, and now it's over 70,000. So it was a totally different world. Um, but making that decision, it definitely felt like, you know, something that I was being pretty strategic about, about where did I need to go to get um, into that top 10 MBA program that I was looking to get into. Um, and I actually ended up staying a little bit longer than I had originally planned because I enjoyed it so much. You know, one of the things, you know, we, we have such a uh, interesting, uh, diverse mix of people that listen to the show. There's a lot of early you know, people that are early stage in their career. There's people that are, you know, much more senior. Um, and one of the things that we try to do in the show is give um, a few key takeaways, you know, to folks um, so that they, when they're done listening, they say, yeah, the, the 45 minutes was actually worth my time. Um, one of the things that's, that's interesting, you know, you had a job, you were making money. Um, and then you decided not to do that anymore and go to school. So how did you think about, you know, the advancement that you would get in your career versus just staying the course and continuing to be an, an earner? It's funny because I wonder if I think about it the same way, looking back at it than I did at the time. But I think I always knew I wanted to go to business school. Um, that was something that I just really was interested in doing. Both of my parents have um, advanced degrees. So it was something that I just thought that you did as I explored the careers that I did early on in my career. And especially at my time at Facebook, I got more and more interested in those large corporations. Um, so growing up, my parents worked for General Foods. Uh, my dad worked for Kraft uh, and then he worked for Pepsi. Uh, so big companies were always a huge part of my upbringing. I was always curious about them and working at Facebook early on we were working with, you know, American Express on their first year small business Saturday. Uh, we worked with Starbucks, uh, big companies, and it was just really interesting to see what they were doing and see what was happening because everything was changing so quickly. And I saw a lot of opportunity there. And for me, going to business school would give me that leg in the door because it's not as much like this now. Uh, but at the time, you know, having an MBA was a really great way to get into one of those companies. 
Yeah, that must have been fun um, at the beginning. So you go to Tuck, you come out of Tuck, and now you've said, all right, I've foregone two years of uh, of earning, and and I, I spent all this money at, at school. Now I got to get a job. So you know, how did you think about what you wanted to do, and and you yeah. ultimately, uh, you know, I guess wound up at L'Oreal. Yeah. So another another interesting thing about business schools, I decide I didn't decide to be a consultant. Uh, which when I graduated, I realized why people become consultants because getting an MBA was extremely expensive. Um, and, you know, going into big corporations, like I chose to do on the CPG side of things was instantly lucrative. Um, but I did go to L'Oreal. I had a very short list of companies I was interested in exploring upon graduation. And it's, you know, some of my prerequisites were, were, was located in an easy distance of New York city. So I could live in the city. Um, and had some sort of an established training program so that I would have like a plan as to where I'm trying to get in two to five years. Um, and L'Oreal had that. In terms of deciding to go to L'Oreal, I think what they bring to the table is actually almost a little less structure. They really pride themselves on internal entrepreneurship. Uh, so, you know, it's not a typical brand manager role. And because of my background at Facebook, I had a unique opportunity to jump right into digital marketing versus a traditional brand manager role. And it turns out that that was a really great fit for both my interests and my skill set, dealing with CRM and loyalty. Um, so one of the cool things I actually got to do, and this is crazy because Kiehl's has been around since 1851, very old brand, but I, during my internship, had the opportunity to develop Kiehl's first ever loyalty program. So that's interesting. You know, that's, you know, a number of years ago, loyalty is is something that's very prominent today. Every business, uh, seemingly every business thinks about uh, wanting to have a loyalty program. So if you are sitting there today, how do you decide if your business should have a loyalty program? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because it's something that I actually think about every day right now with the brands that we work on together at Spark Group. At the time, it was one of those things where we were trying to figure out how to, you know, give our customer a better experience and make sure that they felt that we were paying attention to them and, you know, retaining them and giving them that that higher level of, you know, attention. In terms of now, when we're looking at loyalty programs, as we consider, do we launch one with this brand or that brand or what do we do? I do think it's gotten more complicated. I think, you know, consumers' expectations are really high. There's also some brands out there that have blown it out of the park. Um, and you need to make sure that you can meet those customer expectations. And that's become more challenging, uh, depending on the level of investment and the legacy technology that a company has. But on the same hand, I think it's balancing, you know, when you look at your business, you have new customers and you have existing customers. And I think you need to balance your attention between continuing to bring new customers in the brand, but making sure for everyone that you bring into your brand that you retain them as much as possible because acquiring a customer is very expensive and losing a customer is very expensive. Yeah. And it's amazing in so many of these businesses, whether it be ones that we're in involved with now or, you know, many of the catalog and, and businesses that you know became Internet businesses, you know, the, the number of new customers that these businesses need just to be flat year over year is staggering. You know, mm -hmm. even if you're a business that, you know, can retain or reactivate 50 or 60 or maybe 70 percent of your customers that you start with at the beginning of the year, that means you still need to drive 30 to 40 percent 
of the total customers that buy, you need to drive new ones. And you know, I think to your point, it's getting more and more expensive to acquire new customers. Uh, so really important. But you know, as, as you think about some of the other projects um, you worked on, um, uh, we, we have this also in common uh, working in multi-brand businesses. You worked on a CDP cross-brand task force. So first of all, what does CDP stand for? Yeah, so a CDP is a customer data platform. The ambition of a CDP is to have a single source of truth for all of your customer data so that you understand um, that customer's behavior across all the channels. So those could be sales channels, they could be marketing channels, um, but understanding where that customer is and you know how you can contact them and engage them. At L'Oreal at the time, uh, and this actually ended up coming full circle at Spark Group, as I was working with somebody who's now at a CDP we work with as um, Spark Group that was working with me at L'Oreal on the CDP. Our ambition at L'Oreal, L'Oreal has a lot of brands, three separate divisions, was trying to figure out how do we build this, this capability and technology internally so that we can really continue on our digital transformation. And I think one of the best things about working at L'Oreal uh, for me was that L'Oreal was really ambitious and really you know, bold on making sure that we were transforming that business, that we would grow e-com to a sizable percent of our business. And this is a CPG company that's used to, you know, working with wholesalers. Uh, so really, you know, ahead of the game from that sense, but building a CDP in-house was extremely challenging. Um, and I think the space has evolved quite a bit since then to make it both more affordable and more feasible for companies to do today. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because, you know, back in the day when I was doing this internally, um, you know, we didn't have the terms identity resolution and how you were, you know, mapping one person to the next. It was, it was, we called it merge purge. It was yeah. just the, the merging and purging of, of data records. Yeah, uh, and we were so, just making those rules on Excel sheets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally it was, you know, first, you know, first initial first name, last, you know, uh, first yep. four digits of the last name and, and some, you know, composite of, of a street, you know, address. Um, and that's how we, you know, we mapped it kind of interesting. Also, one of the things that comes up a lot in this uh, in the shows is networking and the power of networking. Um, as you've moved through your career and gone from, you know, one job to to the next, how have those jobs come to pass? All different ways, for sure. Um, for me, uh, networking was really important um, for that job out of my MBA and getting into L'Oreal. I leveraged a lot of my business school network in order to make sure that I could get that foot in the door and be top of the list um, to get the interview. Um, but that's something I focused focused on a lot there. I think that's something I didn't you know, think a lot about ahead of time. But when you go to a small school in New Hampshire, uh, you know, the relationships they have are really specific. And Tuck is a really big consultant school. So going into, you know, a CPG brand manager of a company that usually only takes, you know, one tuck person every couple of years, I definitely had to work that as hard as I could. What a really good story is probably, you know, when I moved out to Nick's. Um, so also it's a L'Oreal company, but I, I did have to make that happen. So for me, uh, we acquired Nick's professional makeup in 2015. Uh, they're based in California. Um, so I reached out to the person that would be my manager for a role that did not exist. And I said, I have a plane ticket. Can you get lunch, um, on this day? And I, I had bought the plane ticket and just showed up. 
Um, and that's how that job ended up happening for me. And he, he's one of the best managers I've ever had and somebody that I keep in touch with very regularly since then. Um, and he did help connect me with the recruiting firm that I worked for my job following L'Oreal. So it's been very important to me. Uh, Spark Group was a little bit different. Spark Group, I did work with a firm, so it wasn't as much, um, you know, a referral from somebody that I knew in my network. However, in terms of landing the role um, and making sure that I was prepared for my interviews and knew a lot, I definitely networked around to figure out, you know, the, the person that was the CEO of the company at the time, what do we have in common? Who do we know in common? Is there any way um, that we're connected somehow. And that helped me a lot during the interview process to make it go smoother um, and just have that personal connection so that they're thinking about you top of mind. Awesome. Showing up with a plane ticket. Love it. So uh, after L'Oreal, you stay in the beauty space, uh, some time at Bliss. Tell us about Bliss. Yes. Bliss was a really interesting role for me. At L'Oreal, my last role was focused on international digital. So I ran the digital business for um, all the countries, including the U.S. Um, so transitioning to Bliss was a chance to work on, you know, a much smaller business, U.S. only. But I was able to work on something that was really in like a higher state of growth at the time. Uh, so Bliss was going through a major transformation from being a luxury brand to a consumer brand. I was uniquely positioned for that role because similarly, I worked on Kiehl's at L'Oreal, which is in their luxury portfolio, and transitioned to NYX Professional Makeup, which is in their consumer portfolio. So that having that background and then coming to Bliss where they had just made that decision was really interesting. And it was a really focus on accelerating the digital business but thinking about it holistically. So as opposed to just thinking about the D2C, we thought about digital sales across the portfolio. Uh, so growing Amazon, uh, growing the D2C business, but also focusing on retailer.coms. Uh, so that's target.com, cvs.com, walgreens.com, and then thinking about the business as a whole and how can we drive growth there. Cool. And in, you know, you talk about the retailer.com, you know, I, I've worked in a number of wholesale businesses that tried to be direct to consumer and I don't know the size, you know, the difference in magnitude of, uh, at, at bliss, but what were the challenges that you, and how did you deal with the challenges of being both a direct to consumer and a wholesale company? I think the challenges, and this is really, um, still plays out today in my role now is where do you spend the money? what's the best use of the money um, and how do you scale it? What was interesting about my role is I also was in charge of um, all of our media uh, and the creative that goes with that media. So we thought a lot about which logos go on the ads. You know, do we tell them that we're available in all of these retailers or do we drive them to our website? So those were the kinds of decisions we were making on a day-to-day -day basis. We saw the most accelerated growth in Amazon. I mean, this was, you know, 2018. <laughs> At the time, Amazon was accelerating quite a bit. There was a lot of opportunity in growing beauty specifically on Amazon. So we actually ended up investing very heavily there and saw significant growth. Um, but we're constantly making decisions about where do we spend our money and where are we going to get the most value for that investment. Do you have a direct-to-consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do, strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. Spark, all right? People talk about Spark. Most people don't know what Spark is. Uh, so tell us what Spark is. 
So Spark Group is a joint venture between Simon Property Group and Authentic Brands Group. Um, they have bought seven brands over the past couple of years, um, and I know we listed them at the top. Um, but the goal is that we, you know, drive growth and efficiency across these brands, um, and in in many cases, turn them around. Uh, or for those brands that were already on a strong trajectory, keep them moving fast. You know, it's interesting. Um, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I, I've been part of uh, three or I guess four now. Um, even before Spark, uh, multi-brand uh, businesses. And, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, portfolio of brands, sometimes brands are up and sometimes brands are down, getting them all seemingly to be, you know, on the up at the same time is a challenge. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to ask you any questions about, you know, <laughs> which ones are up and which ones are down, but do you see that in the portfolio, you know, kind of a business? Yeah. And I think it hasn't been long enough to understand the trends of it. I feel like at L'Oreal, we knew this very well, and that's why they have their three divisions. So during certain times in the economy, you could expect one division to pull the weight and the other division to have a little breathing room. I don't think we're quite there yet, understanding the complexity of that at Spark. Um, and that's not exactly how the brands were selected. Um, so it's a little different than my experience with um, you know, a conglomeration of brands, but I think you know, what's been really rewarding about the experience is that we're all very much focused on growth as a team. And what we've been able to do is bring across all this amazing talent across the brands and learn things from each other really, really fast. Um, and that's something when these brands were all independent, that they didn't have that kind of resource. Um, so it's been something, you know, we've been trying to work on and make sure that they're sharing and that we're able to pull each other along. And your role in the organization uh, is charged with what? So my role um, as, you know, head of CRM and digital marketing is focused on performance marketing. Uh, so really driving that e-commerce business and making sure that we're achieving our sales targets across, you know, non-paid, paid and CRM channels. Um, and then I'm very, I spend a lot of my time on data. And thinking about, you know, what does the CDP look like for Spark and what will that unlock for the brands, the group, and the future of the company? Um, so I, pro I spend probably 50% of my time thinking about that. What's fun about that is, you know, we're studying what's going on in the market, seeing what other companies are doing, and, you know, making a plan. And it, it's pretty cool to work on something that doesn't have a defined way of doing something. Um, I would say performance marketing, still creative, but a little more structured in the sense that you kind of have, you know, some really tight guardrails, um, whereas the other half of my job is a little bit more open-ended. I've always felt that one of the challenges with, you know, you can develop a CDP or a, a source of truth of your data, um, and you can know in your head that you want to use that data uh, to be able to activate different customer groups and different segments but the void between the two, you know, how do you get from the data being the source of truth to actually using it um, and making it management actionable? How are you thinking about that? You know, I think I'm really lucky in this role that I've played with the CDP concept before coming here. Um, so I've been able to learn a lot from, you know, what didn't work before and think differently. So what I try to do with my team and our partners is really think about, well, if we take this data in, what are we going to do with it? So we talk about what we're going to do with it before we do anything. Um, and that has helped a lot. It's helped us focus on action and less on something theoretical 
and nice to know. So we really do evaluate, you know, how we prioritize our work as to, is this going to help us achieve our goal of driving growth for this brand? Is it going to help us achieve our goal for getting better engagement out of this customer group? Is this customer group going to be big enough to have a difference in the top line? So we're really specific about where we focus our energy. So we are less about that single truth of the customer as our what we're thinking about, but we're thinking about the action and what we're going to do with it, how it's going to play out, how it's going to work at scale, um, things like that. And, you know, you talk a lot about partners and you can't do any of this without a good set of partners. How do you think about, how do you make the decisions? You know, you, you, you selected a CDP vendor. There's lots of vendors out there that hold themselves out as CDP. How do you think about how you make a decision like that? Yeah. So, um, luckily, you know, I actually came into spark group from lucky group or lucky brand. Um, so we actually were working with spark CDP partner before then. So that partner was part of our ecosystem, uh, and something that we were able, able to expand across the brands, but in terms of evaluating, moving forward with them and keeping them and expanding them to other brands was really about their capabilities and what we were trying to do. I think, you know, as we thought about a CDP, we thought a lot about the actionability because I think one of the major challenges with building a CDP is the cost. And you really don't want another cost center. Uh, you really want something that's going to drive revenue. And that's something that I think that the partner that we chose was uniquely able to, to prove out and do um, and focus on. And that was their, their main focus was, you know, downstream activation. Um, and that's that's really what we were looking for. The cost of all kinds of marketing uh, continue to to rise. Um, how are you dealing with that? Um, you know, you, you talked about performance marketing, and that's where mm -hmm. you're spending so much of your time. But um, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, there's more difficulty in tracking people because of privacy policy changes and cost increases. So, you know, how are you dealing with that? It's been very challenging. Um, it's also been happening very fast. I'm sure anybody that's in you know, a role like ours today can see it happening in real time. Uh, so it's definitely intimidating. I think that's where we've really doubled down on thinking carefully about what we do in the CRM world um, in order to make sure that that world where the costs are kind of steady. So if you get more revenue out of those channels, um, it becomes more efficient and maybe you can spend less on paid. So we've been thinking a lot about that. Like, are we, are we doing everything we can in the CRM world to make sure that it's pulling as much weight as possible? I think outside of paid costs going up, we also have the challenge with organic not being as impactful as it once, once was. And, I don't have um, a clear idea of what we really need to do there quite yet, but that's the other thing that I think a lot about. So it's rising costs and paid, organic slowing down, and making sure that we optimize CRM as much as possible. But I think that's where you know peers and relationships come into play. I meet a lot with people at other companies to understand, you know, how are you facing this challenge? Because we're all having the same challenges, and and you know everybody can probably share something that's working for them, and you can share something back, and hopefully, you know, it can make a difference. Um, but you know, that's what makes this job so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I can tell you, and, and you, you and I have talked about this, you know, in, in the work that I do when we were working together now um, on, I've been working on the Eddie Bauer brand, but, you know, uh, before I was back at Eddie Bauer and, and I had done a stint at uh, Brooks Brothers as well, you know, I've had other clients and whether the companies are 
large or small, I mean, there's different problems that they're all dealing with, but so many of the things you just mentioned, large and small are dealing with um, very, very consistently. Um, and many of them, you know, you know, still struggling to, to figure it out. You talk about, um, you know, costs of marketing and, and all. Um, but one of the things that I've heard others talk about, and I've asked this question about shiny object syndrome, you know, adding tools to websites, adding tools to businesses. What do you um, suggest people do before they think about adding another tool to their business? Yes. And this is something that we've dealt with a lot. Uh, as I've said, we've, sh- we've acquired a lot of brands. We've made some tough decisions on, um, you know, exiting partners, exiting partners isn't forever. Uh, but I think the first question that we ask ourselves is, are we using it? Um, and then before we buy anything new, how are we going to use it? Is it reasonable? Do we have a team to support this? And does the partner have the team to just to support the team that we have? I think one thing that we've learned at Spark is, you know, we are super lean. Uh, we we have very small teams, so we can only do so much. So the kind of partner that may have worked for any of us at a previous company may not be appropriate for our team at Spark because we don't have the bandwidth to work the same way that we did at a previous company. Um, and that's been something, something that's helped a lot in us being really choiceful about when we add something. It's really that exercise and what's the value it's going to bring. Does it help us achieve our long-term goal? Um, and making sure that it checks those boxes before we, you know, spend time on calls trying to figure it out. It's amazing how many, you know, people, how many businesses, you know, go off and they put a tool in, um, they plan to launch it over two or three phases. They launch phase one, they never go back to phase two and three. They realize that they're paying way more for something that um, they shouldn't be. And the other part that people forget about is and you mentioned it, uh, is the team, you know, you, you get a tool and just because you have a piece of technology does not mean that it's going to help you. It's not going to run itself. You've got to right. have, you know, either external resources or somebody internally to be able to leverage it. Uh, and that's not something that a lot of businesses remember. Let's go to talent. You mentioned, you know, that you're pretty lean, uh, you know, we're recording this in, you know, the end of August of 2022, uh, the last year, maybe 18 months, Um, have seen a talent market, especially in digital uh, marketing and performance marketing, get really, really competitive. Um, What are you seeing? Yeah, uh, recruiting has been, you know, challenging for sure. Uh, We've had more success in some areas than others. I would say the biggest opportunity, like if I were, you know, a college student right now and thinking about what I was going to do, um, definitely on the engineering side, data analytics, SQL, a lot of opportunity there, endless amounts of jobs, um, and an area that has been, you know, more difficult for us to find, find people for. Um, But in terms of, I think this also plays into like retaining talent. Uh, So that's become obviously super critical. We have a really, really strong team and it's making sure that, you know, that team feels properly supported, even if we have multiple roles open that we're not filling, Um, you know, how do we make sure that people know what the priorities are? So they're not, you know, working long hours every single day and that they're, they're managing their time. And I, I think on, you know, the digital marketing team, we've had a lot of success there, a lot of really honest conversations and, you know, open door policy on discussing topics like that to make sure that people feel like they're progressing in their career and that it's manageable and that it's fun uh, and that they're, they're enjoying what they're doing and learning. But, you know, in terms of talent, spending a lot of time on LinkedIn, uh, reaching out to people and seeing, you know, if they have recommendations on people to fill roles. So if you are looking for a role in data and analytics, definitely look at Spark Group open roles because we do have a few open. But 
you know, the market market's been definitely interesting. And I, I think it's a good place to be right now. Yeah, I would agree. Well, look, uh, good stuff. You uh, have made uh, great strides uh, in your career. Uh, so congratulations uh, on, on that. And I know that uh, the work, having worked with you at Spark and, and watching you, the way you conduct yourself, uh, the thought process that you have is is really uh, great to see and to watch. And, you know, I learn uh, new things every day. So it's, uh, so it's great. Down to uh, the end of the show, we do this two-minute drill. Uh, seven questions, one or two word answers. I say this all the time, nobody ever sticks to one or two word answers, but we're going to give it a try here. You ready? Yeah, I'm determined. Okay. First one, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? Patagonia. Favorite app on your phone? Starbucks. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? Uh, it's called AIR, A-Y-R. It stands for all year round. Actually, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that and I'll be the one that won't, you know, that'll talk. More. <laughs> um, I saw them today in WWD. I guess they're um, going to build a men's line uh, oh, as well. Great. It's yeah. all, it's the whole concept of like the capsule collection. So they have like a great button down shirt. It's apparently Oprah's favorite shirt. I don't think that's how I found out about it. I don't really know how it got right. on my radar, but I love it. Something that you're good at, uh, not good at, but wish that you were. Being more patient. Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Feeding America. And if you had one superpower, what would it be? Teleport. Teleport. Where do you want to go? I just want to be able to be places like quickly. Yeah, living on the West Coast and traveling to the East Coast, you lose like a day each way. Um, and I do a lot of traveling. So teleporting would be like really helpful. <laughs> Other than family, what's your most prized possession? All of my sports gear. And uh, where can people reach out to you on social media if they would like to do that? Uh, LinkedIn would be great for that one. Okay. All right, Carolyn, this was great. Um, I'm glad I have an opportunity to, uh, to slack with you every day uh, now. Um, I appreciate uh, all the, that time we spend uh, talking about business. Um, and thanks for doing this uh, show. It was nice to see you. And uh, even though you're wearing the Lehigh hat. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I also learn a lot from you every day and enjoy working with you a ton. Um, it's been really helpful. Uh, so thank, thank you for everything. My pleasure. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Carolyn Anderson for coming on the marketing playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Acquiring new customers for your business is expensive, so it's crucial to create tactics to retain them. Loyalty programs are one way to retain customers, and seemingly now, most brands offer some form of loyalty. Be thoughtful about your offering. Understand what's important to your customers. It might be that discounts matter, but many brands are seeing that created special experiences for your members are really what drives engagement with the brand. Number two, as you think about making a change in where you work, if at all possible, find a company that's ambitious and innovative and willing to make the changes needed to achieve the goals that they've set. Of course, you need to find the right culture for you, get the right compensation and benefits, but working for a business that's ambitious will keep you growing and stimulated in your role. And number three, well, actually two takeaways rolled together, networking and change. Carolyn explained how she leveraged her network to grow her career. You've heard that one before. 
build a network and leverage it where you can. Also, both Carolyn and I made the leap from finance into marketing. You can change too if you feel like you want to. Don't be afraid to tackle something new, especially if you're still early in your career. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Thank you.